back, Sam! I'm going to Mordor alone. Of course you are! And I'm coming with you! You can't oh. swim! Oh. 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 Sam! Oh. Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Oh, Sam. Well, good morning. Welcome to our Cactus Venue Chapel Northridge communities, as well as those of you joining us online. We're so glad that you're here. It's good to be together. Uh, you're probably asking one of two questions, either what was that or why was that? And that's, that's okay. Uh, what that was is, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the books and the movies, that is from J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, incredible symbolic fable, The Lord of the Rings. It was written in the late 1930s, and it, it really is one of the great symbolic tales of our time, some would argue of all time. For those of us who are familiar, who have read those books or gone through the, the tale and movie, it, it chronicles a journey of a collection of characters uh, they go on this incredible road, and uh, it's become kind of to shine a metaphorical light on the trials and the triumphs of Christian living. There's so many wonderful symbolisms uh, through the entire film that show us different parts of our Christian walk. One of the things that I want to hone in on today is just one aspect of this story. It's the aspect of friendship. You just saw two of the main characters, Sam and Frodo, as they go on this perilous journey going to Mordor. They're taking this horrible object, this kind of symbolism of evil, the ring, back to its place of origin to be destroyed in Mount Doom, the place where evil will be overcome and where good will triumph. That concept of friendship is really important to where we're going for the next five weeks. So many times people come into the church and they'll end up in my office or in the offices of, of all of our pastors, of which there are many on staff. And, and what we hear constantly, because we talk a lot and just kind of, hey, what are people dealing with? What should we be prepared for? Is we hear people say, I just feel so alone. I'm going through difficulty and challenges in my life. And people will tell me on a regular basis, I don't have anyone. There's nobody who I can sit and, and talk to. And it's a very common cultural phrase. We've heard this a lot. You could almost probably finish it. Good friends are hard to come by. Good friends are hard to find. And I think good friends are this type of friend, a friend who when the chips are down, you can pick up the phone, you can make the call, and they are available. A good friend is available when you need them. They can and are ready to respond when called upon. What I'd put on your plate today to chew on just a little bit is that there's probably another category of friend, one like we saw symbolized in our clip, there's a great friend. A great friend doesn't just wait for you to call on them, 
ready to respond, a great friend pursues you. Sam had made a commitment earlier in the movie. He's the little hobbit who came bursting out of the woods onto the shore there. Sam had promised in that tale that he would stay by Frodo's side, that he would walk with him. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, Sam wasn't going out there even though the little hobbit couldn't swim. He wasn't risking his life because he was excited about a boat ride. He didn't want to just go for a hike. What Sam wanted was to risk his life simply to walk with his good friend Frodo. That's a great friend. What I'd submit to you today for our purposes and really for what we'll talk about as the central thesis for our next five weeks is that there's another category. There is a perfect friend. One who wouldn't come just being willing to risk his life, but one who would come willingly ready to give it, knowing that that's what would be required if he was going to walk with the ones that he loved. There's a perfect friend that we're going to talk about for the next five weeks as we talk through this series called He Walks With Me. We're going to kick that off today by walking through this first component that Jesus hones in on in the first four verses of John chapter 16 as he looks and he says very clear that he wants us to remember. We're going to talk a little bit about what remembering the things of Jesus looks like in our daily lives. So to kick that off, would you bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in recognition of the fact that there is a perfect friend. There's some who are in these rooms or maybe sitting in their living room at home watching online, and they may not feel that connection. They may not have that relationship. They may have never met the perfect friend of Jesus Christ. I I just pray, God, today that you would meet them in the midst of that. There's probably some fear in that. There's probably some confusion. Would you kind of find your way through those things as only you can and help those who don't have a relationship with you hear the invitation into a great friendship with a perfect friend, a place where you have created in them for yourself. Uh, For those of us who have walked with you for a while, I pray today that you would burden our hearts just a little bit with what that means places where we can experience more of you, places where you're calling us to more. These things will require you to change our hearts. We cannot do this work on our own. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so John chapter 16, the first four verses will look like this. Jesus is speaking. He's coming out of chapter 15, and he's kind of continuing this farewell speech that he's in the midst of. And he says this to his disciples gathered around the table. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Again, Jesus is kind of saying goodbye to his disciples. It started in chapter 13 of John, and Jesus does some things. He washes their feet. He excuses Judas. Uh, Chapter 14 and 15 become very instructive in kind of the Christian life. And chapter 16 starts to transition into some very heavy farewell language. We're in the middle of it now, but Jesus, for most of chapter 15 and 16, is kind of in the midst of this one-two punch, back and forth between precaution, careful, these things are coming, and provision, The last time I got to be with you guys in the pulpit, I got to wrap up chapter 15 and talk about Jesus giving us the provision of the Holy Spirit in the midst of what came before it, persecution. 
We're, we're kind of transitioning back into a section today where Jesus is saying yet again, hey, be careful, something's coming. This first verse is so very good. Jesus is instructing what I've said in chapter 15, presumably, that he has said these things to keep us from falling away. Jesus, with strength and encouragement, is telling his disciples that he will walk with them. You may look at this and say, well, no, he's actually saying that they should walk with him. I want you to hear this. He's giving them a hope to stick around when things, don't get, when things get rough, not to fall away when things of this temporal, momentary, earthly existence of theirs get difficult. But I think he's calling them not to lose the understanding that he is a great, no, no, the best friend that they could possibly have in the midst of the difficulty that they will wrestle with. In addition to that, he is saying, I understand the things that you'll go through because I've gone through them first. If you look at the first four verses of chapter 16, Jesus will go through every single thing he has outlined. He has been put out of the synagogues already and people who do not know the father nor do they know him will take his life through the crucifixion. Jesus is no stranger. John chapter 15, just this last chapter, verse 18 says this. Okay, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus has already experienced persecution. So it's a little early, we're about six minutes into this sermon, for me to start messing with you guys, but that's what they pay me to do, so stick around. What is it in your life, look back, that has caused you to fall away? What are the things in your life, the things that you've experienced where your faith has failed what are the challenges and the things that you worry about in the future? I don't know, I heard a testimony, somebody went through this. I don't think I'd make it through that. I look back at my own life and I think about times where Rustin Rossello's plan seemed like a lot better deal than Jesus' plan. So I ditched Jesus' plan and I tried mine. Without fail, 100% of the time, it was always harder. Here's what Jesus knows, and this is why I'm pointing you to what Jesus is really saying in this verse. Jesus knows that he will keep his promise. What is he asking the disciples not to do? Don't fall away. Fall away from what? That's the key question in this verse. What is he asking them not to fall away from? Him. Do not fall away. I will get you through this. I'm telling you these things that you don't fall away. Who had they been called to? Him. Jesus is telling his disciples, don't, call, don't fall away when things get tough. And now, as an example, we get to talk about one of my favorite biblical characters. It's easy to pick on him, okay? He's kind of the knucklehead of the group, all right? Peter. Peter is the best. It's easy sometimes. I feel like Christians often go, you know what? I don't want to be like Peter. Peter's the one who's always ready, fire, aim. He's unprepared. He's not thoughtful. I'll submit to you today, I wish more Christians were like Peter. I think there's something that Peter does that's really amazing. Peter's the picture of hope followed by heartache. Peter has the audacity to dream these divine dreams. These incredibly divinely sourced hopes exist in Peter. And yet he falls away over and over again because he suffers his human limitations. You guys see that in his life over and over again. It's like, hey, Peter, let's walk on water. Peter's like, awesome, I'm in. 10 minutes later, whoops, wait a minute. I'm not good at this. 
That's his whole existence with Jesus. One of my favorite exchanges, there's one point, and it's almost within three verses, where Jesus is looking at him and goes, who do you say that I am? Peter gives an answer, and he goes, the Spirit of God has said this to you. Like two verses later, he's looking at him, and Jesus is literally saying, Satan, get behind me. It's like, wow, that escalated quickly. What is going on here? That's Peter. One of my favorite kind of examples of this, and the reason I love this so much, I stumbled on this this week, is I think Peter has this incredible divine hope in him. Ecclesiastes 3 has a great verse. It's verse 11. And you see it a lot of times. Once I say it, you'll go, yep, that verse belongs on pallet wood on somebody's home, some crafty, creative little sign that you could buy in our bookstore. That's where that verse belongs. This is it. He has made everything beautiful in its time, right? We see that. It's on necklaces. It's all over the Christian world. It makes a great bumper sticker. Here's the rest of that verse. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I love that. Peter has eternity set in his heart. And he's a whole lot bolder with his eternity than most of his men who surround him. Peter sits there and goes, Jesus, I am willing to do anything and everything. I will go with you wherever you want to go. One of my favorite exchanges between Peter and Jesus is in Luke 22. Let's take a look at it right now. Verses 31 through 33. This is Jesus and Peter are having an exchange. This is kind of a parallel passage to the passage in John that we're in right now. So it says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, Simon, Simon, for those of you who haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible, Simon is also Peter, okay? Same guy, that's confusing. Let's move on. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he, this is Peter, Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Homeboy won't make it through the night before he breaks both of those promises. You got that? He's going to get to the point where Jesus gets arrested, and here's the deal. Peter had a hope. It was an eternal hope. He said, listen, I will do these things for you, and you know what? He will before he dies. But in this moment, Peter is going to fall away. Jesus gets arrested. He goes. Jesus even tells him. I mean, Peter has every benefit on this one. You're going to deny me three times before the crow cries. Peter, absolutely not. I'll go with you to death and to prison. The moment Jesus is off the table, because Peter assuredly went, if I've got you by my side, I can do anything. Not quite high enough a hope. The second Jesus is arrested, he's off the table. Here come the guys. Hey, um, you, there, by the fire. Aren't you one of his? Uh, no, no, huh, I'm not. Oh, no, you're one of his guys, aren't you? Uh-uh, no, I'm not. No, you're like one of the 12, one of his best friends. I don't know the guy, says Peter. The alarm clock goes off. The crow cries. Peter realizes what he's done. The thing I want you to see today, and this is why this verse is so important, it, Jesus doesn't forget Peter, does he? For those of you that don't know the rest of the story, Jesus would go on to be crucified. He would raise from the dead. And then in this process where he is walking around after he has been risen from the dead, he's at a meal. You can probably feel the tension in the room. Peter denied Jesus exactly how Jesus said he would. You could probably feel the scene, okay? Just imagine when a bunch of us are sitting around in the room. Peter's over there. Jesus is here. Peter's probably got his head down, maybe an occasional glance. What's he thinking? Hey, uh, 
Sorry about that. That one's on me. Bad deal. Does Jesus forget about him and go, hey man, yeah, but you, you, you kind of stepped aside. When I needed you the most, Peter, when you were my friend, when I was absolutely in my darkest hour and I needed you, you walked away from me. You denied me. You told them you didn't know me. Is that what Jesus says? No. No, as a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't just say, I forgive you. Jesus goes way further than that. Jesus looks across the room at this meal and he goes, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. For every denial, there was a reclaiming. For every place where Jesus had denied Christ, he came back and was given the opportunity to declare Christ. Jesus comes back as only Jesus can do. He tells him, makes him declare in his own voice that he loves Jesus, and then he gives Peter his rightful place back as a shepherd feeding the lambs and the sheep of the church because the church needed its shepherd. Man, for those of you that wrestle with, does God forget me when I sin? No, he paid for it. He paid for it for one reason and one reason only, because he loves you and it's your first point today. What you need to see in this verse is not us, but it's Jesus that is faithful. He will not let you go. He will not let a guy like Peter be a victim or a casualty of falling away. He won't let you either. From there, Jesus walks on to verse two and he's gonna get some really kind of focused attention to exactly what they're about to go through. He says, listen, I don't want you to fall away. They're probably going, well, why would we? Well, verse two tells us. Because they're gonna put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they're offering service to God. The fastest way for me to create some open seating at Scottsdale Bible Church would be to, met, to kind of preach a message that sounded like this. Hey guys, you're all about to die. Persecution's gonna get really rough. Everyone's like, I don't know about this place. This is uncomfortable. We should try down the street. Jesus is describing the first couple hundred years. You guys have a bad week and you go, I don't know, this is hard. The first couple hundred years of the church was a radical persecution. Martyrdom like you can't imagine. Christians were fed to lions. They were torn apart, beaten, stoned. Some of the most horrific things you can imagine, they were stuck on stakes covered in tar and set on fire to light the gardens of wealthy pagans. You imagine? You imagine what that would be like. One such individual, kind of a hero of the early church, it was the church's first martyr, is Stephen. Acts chapter six talks about Stephen. Stephen's just a minister. He's a guy who's had his, his life radically changed by Jesus Christ and his ministry. And now this is Stephen. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue rose up and disputed with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him, seized him and brought him before the council. Jesus said this was coming and this is it. In the early church, it happens exactly how Jesus said. Uh, Stephen steps up, and let's just be clear. What is Stephen doing? Ministering powerfully. 
Like Stephen's there and it says signs and wonders. Presumably people are getting healed and ministered to. They're being cared for in deep spiritual and physical ways that would have been very life-giving. And yet others sit back and they go, oh, we've seen this before. It's another one of these types. So what do they do? What's the first thing they do? They argue with him. The scriptures tell us it was to no avail. The wisdom and the spirit of God that was in Stephen was so strong, they had nothing. Well, they got a playbook for this, don't they? What's the next thing they're gonna do? If we can't argue you away, we're gonna kill you. I love what happens kind of at the end of Acts 7. It says, this is towards the end, it says, Stephen's standing there. They cast him out of the city and they stone him. Verse 58 says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul, who becomes Paul, who becomes the most prolific writer of the New Testament. You think your testimony's too rough for God to use? Try having your testimony read like this. Ravaged, murderous threats against the church and killed and jailed Christians. First time Jesus shows up to Saul on the road to Damascus, his first question, why are you persecuting me? It's a whole other sermon on restoration for just this point. But for today, we gotta see Jesus was beautifully, prophetically forecasting the ministry of Saul. This is what I want you to see. Like Stephen in the midst of this moment who did not fall away, God is calling us to something very important here through his word. He is calling us to be faithful. Jesus is faithful. He's the foundation. He knows the only thing in this case that the disciples and you, some 2,000 years later, the only thing that will ever be reliable is him. He knows the only thing that will ever be able to, that you'll be able to stand on over and over again is him. He's the only thing that won't waver and won't change. I, I want you to see that what Jesus is doing here kind of transitions into verse three because you ask the question, why on earth would a group of people who are being ministered to, the way Stephen was ministering, why would they ever wanna kill somebody like that? It's a fair question, right? I mean, he's caring for them in incredible ways. Miraculous things are happening. Why would you ever say, we've got to stop this? Jesus gives us the answer right here in verse three. It says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I just wanna to submit to you today one of the things that I think is important. You can hear this verse a couple of different ways. And if I was the disciples, I would hear it in a very specific way. Jesus first says, don't fall away. Then he comes back and he starts to describe in verse two how bad it's gonna get. And if I'm the disciples in that moment, what I'm thinking well, this isn't fair. I just wanna love God and love others and you're telling me that people are gonna hate me for that reason? That's not fair, that's unjust and not, not to mention it's terrifying. I, I don't like them for wanting to do that to me and if I were the disciples, I would hear this verse in the first way I'll submit to you that it could be heard today. It could be heard in harshness. Jesus saying, here's what's gonna happen to you. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. What's the implication? And that's on them. They will get their due penalty. Don't worry, you serve a just God. But they're gonna do these things. It's okay to hate them. It's okay to pray against them. There's another way you can hear this verse. I wanna submit it to you today. You can hear it with compassion. You can hear Jesus saying, these things are gonna happen to you guys. And they'll do these things because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. What's the implication? And that should break your heart. 
That should crush you. That should make you think about all the times you didn't know me and the foolish things you did. It should ravage your spirit to know that they're still living a life of emptiness and brokenness because they don't know my dad and they don't know me. The reason I submit this understanding of this verse to you is because Jesus is always filled with grace and truth. He's always filled with facts and compassion. Jesus is, I think, in this verse doing something beautiful. I think he's foreshadowing something that would happen down the road. Jesus would go from this dinner. He'd spend some time in the garden. For those of you who don't know the story, he would come to this place where now he has been arrested. He's being given what is a very foolish trial. And in the midst of the greatest injustice, he would be beaten. What Jesus went through, historians would tell us, for you to go through that type of torture, what would have happened to the human body would have rendered it almost unrecognizable as human. He would have been whipped, torn almost to shreds with what they beat him with. He would have, been, he would have basically at this point been encased in his own wounds. Every time he moved, the dried blood would have started to move and crack. It would have been horrifically painful for him to even walk, much less carry a cross of the size that they hung him on. In the midst of all of this, he finally ends up getting nailed. His feet would have been like this. We've all seen the reenactments. And as he's sitting there, nailed, struggling to breathe because when you're crucified, you're crucified like this and you have to use your legs, pushing up on the nails that hold you to... until you can do it again. As all of this is going on and Jesus is standing there on this cross being pinned, wait on this nail. He looks down. The men that hung him there have this place below the cross. It says that they were gambling for his clothes, casting lots to see who gets the little belongings that Jesus has left. His clothes aren't on him. He's covered by a small humiliating cloth as he's standing there bleeding to death in the midst of public In the midst of this great injustice, the greatest injustice that's ever happened because a man came to save people from their sins and he was killed by the very ones he came to save. Looking down on these men who have nailed him here, the hammers that drove the nails probably not far away. He looks down in the midst of them gambling for his clothes. Jesus does something unprecedented and I'll submit to you, he casts a vision for what we are supposed to be doing. He doesn't go with, by the way, the scriptures tell us the full power of heaven at his disposal to destroy the earth. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us the words of Luke 23, 34. And it says this, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus in a moment, probably his darkest physical moment, experiencing pain, he stands in the way of those who nailed him there, looks back at the heavenly places and says, Dad, go easy on them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't be too hard. Uh, They don't get it. Remember, Dad, they don't know you. They don't know me. Be compassionate on them, Dad. This is echoed again, not far away. The reason I'm gonna submit to you today that this is really important is we don't just see it once. If you take our friend Stephen, who was in the midst of just a perilous situation, he gets drugged out of the city. Uh, They've given him this goofy trial and now it's enough's enough. They drag him outside of the city and they prepare to stone him This would have been a horrible way to die. People just pick up rocks and they start throwing them at you until they knock you unconscious. And eventually you bleed to death from the wounds. You're bludgeoned to death by rocks. Talk about inhumane. 
But that's what Stephen is going through. And in the midst of everything that Stephen's going through, this is what we experience at the end of Acts chapter seven, right after everybody has laid their garments down at the feet of Saul, verse 59 picks it up. And they say, as, and they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, get this church, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen does exactly what we're called to do as Christians. We are called to love the ones who persecute us, to pray for our enemies. You see, the reality is that if you are called to be faithful because Jesus is faithful and that's the foundation we stand on, there's a reality. You are to be faithful to the life that Jesus called you to, not the life that you want to live. You are called to follow after Jesus who gave his life. Are you willing to give up yours? Is your heart broken for the cubicles around you at work? Are you devastated for your neighbors who probably are sitting there if they don't know the Lord going, what am I going to put in this, what they don't know is a Jesus-shaped hole? What are they going to do with the eternity that God has placed in the human heart? Because all the distractions that they have will not fill it. And God has placed you and me on their street to love them. To just care for them. And someday when you're asked, why are you so loving? You get the opportunity to go because somebody else loved me first. Because there was a perfect friend who still walks with me. He's actually the one whose love you're feeling right now. Eternity was placed in my heart. I tried to fill it with everything else. It didn't work. Is your heart broken for the world around you? Because to be faithful to Christ is to cultivate the heart of Christ for God and for others. Church, that's what we're called to. And I'll be honest right now, I am not good at this. I'm serious. It is rough for me sometimes. I can preach this stuff, but I'm wrestling through it with you guys every day. I'll give you a great example. Christmas Day, I'm on the 101. You can already see where this is going, right? December 25th, that's a fairly cheery day. December 25th, it's eight o'clock at night. We'd been at my sister's all day in Gilbert, hanging out. You know, the kids, had, I mean, it wasn't a Norman Rockwell painting. They were crazy. It was nuts, right? Everything is, and we did it all. And now it's like the kids are starting to fall asleep. I got a peaceful drive. I got my bride next to me. This is good times. We're just talking. Wasn't this great? Oh, yeah, this, this was great. Okay. All of a sudden, somebody comes up behind me. I'm not gonna tell you how fast I was going, okay? But I was going fast enough to where I didn't feel like when he flashed his brights, you know, it's road code for, hey, could you bump over? I'd like to go past you. I looked down at my speedometer and I went, no. (laughs) You can go around. I don't wanna move, okay? I feel like I'm going plenty fast. There's three other lanes. Nobody's out here. Go around, okay? So he does. Goes around. Guy pulls in front of me and, uh, and he just starts slowing down, okay? By the time, right, yeah. No, I know, I felt the same way. By the time we're done, <laughs> we're doing like 50 on the 101, and he's just back there just making his point, okay? Here's your pastor's heart of Christ in the midst of this moment. I'm sitting there going, Lord, I'd give anything for a Ford Super Duty and a stainless steel bumper. A little love tap for my boy, and I'll send you off in Jesus' name. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. Guys, I can't handle the 101 on Christmas Day. How do you think I'd do in Stephen's position? How do you think I'd do 
when people persecute me. We're not real well equipped in today's day and age to deal with our enemies, to pray for the ones who persecute us. Do you know why? We don't experience as much of it as the church did. The church was so strong in the early days. Why? Because their very life was on the line. To follow Christ was to be in physical, perilous danger all the time. Constant. Church, we have to recognize that what Jesus is calling us to is a cultivating heart, a heart that is constantly being worked on to be aimed back out at the world because it's filled with what we're receiving from the heart of Christ for God. We have to be willing to respond with a compassionate heart. There's this last thing that we sit back, because we've looked at it thus far. The foundation is what? Jesus is faithful. What's he calling us to? He's calling us to be faithful as well. What does faithfulness look like? It looks like us cultivating Christ's heart for God and for the world. But if I'm you, and I have been all week as I've studied this passage, we're all asking the same question. How do we do that? What does that look like, Rustin? Help me, because you're right. I don't have people beating my door down to drag me off to prison because I own a Bible. There are places in our world, by the way, where that is their case. It's not here. I think what Jesus does is he answers that question in verse four. Let's look at it real quick. It says this, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That you may remember. The final point I want you to look at today is this. You can fill in these blanks. We remain faithful by remembering his works and his word. We remember his works and his word. What do we mean by works? What are the works of God in your life? Well, there's so many times where we're on life's journey and we're sitting there, we get to a place on the mountain of life that we're climbing and we go, I'm stuck. I don't know what it looks like from here to go forward. I just, I don't see the path. Where do I go from here? We start to get hopeless, we start to get worried. The works of God is him taking your face as a little child. Because I always think about myself, I got a five-year-old at home, and I always think about myself as kind of that age when I'm with the Lord. I don't think all of my adultness, of which little I've gathered in my life, (laughs) means that much in the presence of an eternal God. I am his child, I always will be. And I think he takes our face and he turns us back and he goes, Rustin, do you see? Remember that scenario back when you thought it would take your very life, and it didn't or when you thought you wouldn't overcome this, or this, or this, and we made it, you're here, it worked. Do you trust me to give you a path the rest of the way? See, so many times, as soon as we hit that I don't know where to go from here moment, we immediately say this, I can't believe I'm here again. I can't believe that I'm doing this again, that I'm stuck again. Church, you have to hear this today. You are not where you started. You are not where this journey found you. God has grown you to get you to where you are today. The works of God are the things he's brought you through. Do you remember them? That he has been faithful already. You've grown a great deal to get to where you are in this day in the beginning of March in 2019. A really great book this week that a friend of mine kind of put me on to, Julie Hamilton said, hey, there's a great book. It's by a guy named Stu Weber. It's called Infinite Impact. There's some great stuff on remembering. Maybe you could use it for your sermon. She was right. Weber has got this to say. He says, far from being a loss to us, the past seasons of our lives are often the means of our deliverance in the present and the very preparation we need to face the future. 
If you find yourselves, and I love this church, locked up, shut down, and paralyzed from taking action, the answer to the riddle may very well lie in your past. When I am locked up, shut down, and paralyzed on the mountain of life going, I don't know where I go from here. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Lord, I don't see the path. Is it the Lord going, would you look back? Would you look back at what we've already been through? Stay here. Don't fall away. I got you. Second thing we've got to look at and we've got to be willing to focus on is the word. The word of God is the greatest gift you've got. The reality is that it's a wonderful thing. Here's a verse that I lean on all the time. The scene is this in the scriptures. It's from Deuteronomy. Joshua is about to take over the leadership of the nation of Israel from Moses, okay? Moses is one of those guys that you kind of don't want to have to follow as a leader, right? Like I always joke, like right now, nobody wants to follow Nick Saban after being at Alabama. It's like, yeah, nobody wants that job next. That's going to be hard, okay? No football fans, huh? (laughs) We'll try it again. So here's the reality. Moses has led Israel out of absolute slavery. It's been horrible. Every time he showed up in front of Pharaoh, plagues. It was a nightmare. And yet Moses is there going, this is what God's going to do. And sure enough, okay? He has the ability to part oceans, which is nice to have on your resume if you get it. Joshua's terrified because he's about to take on a massive mantle of leadership and knees shaking, standing before Moses. He's sitting there and you got to imagine what is this going to be like? And Joshua's mentor, Moses says this, He says this, he looks at him and he goes, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You imagine those powerful words. One of the things that I do in my life and my ministry, and I oftentimes, I still, I wrestle at times. I don't know whether it's stupidity or gifting, but I just don't wrestle with being transparent. So I'll share with you guys many times, hey, these are the things the Lord's doing in my life. And I've been pretty open when I've preached a lot over the last couple of years. The Lord's really taken me through a lot in my marriage. Now, I'm wrestling in my marriage, not because I'm not married to a great woman, I am. Jamie, who's right down here today, is an amazing godly woman. But I am going through a lot in my marriage because Jesus is creating in me a better reflection of Christ to Jamie, my wife, on a daily basis. That's why I'm growing, and there's a lot of growth that needs to occur. But there have been times over the last two years because God has been taking apart like decade-old strongholds in me, things that I have struggled with and wrestled from childhood, emotional, relational, all kinds of things. And there have been times where I've been on the mountain and gone, I don't totally know where to go next. I don't know what your restoration in my life looks like, and I can't self-generate heart change, which, by the way, neither can you, okay? Behavior modification will not get me through this. Jesus, you either show up and change my heart, or I I don't know how to go forward. I can't do this growth on my own. It's in those moments where I'm going, God, you have to show up, that God is so good to come down and to grab my face as a child and to point me back, to show me, remember, we started this journey, this was hard for you, this was hard for you. Is that hard for you anymore, Rustin? Well, no, those things actually aren't hard anymore. We've overcome those. Stop, wait, what'd you say? We've overcome those. Okay, do you think we'll overcome again? Yeah. But then on top of the works, what I hear the Lord doing is going, hey, do you hear my verse over your life? Do you hear Deuteronomy 31, Rustin? Do you hear it? And God will just so lovingly kind of whisper into my ear, Rustin, I go before you. I'll be with you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. 
Rustin, don't be afraid. Rustin, do not be discouraged. You see, the combination of what Christ has accomplished in my life combined with the promises that he gave me in his word remind me that he will always be faithful. He will not let me be a casualty of falling away. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. What I wonder today is what is it for you? Are you wrestling with what's next in your life? Are you in a season right now where you're sitting there and you're going, hey, I gotta make a decision. There's a fork in the road. I don't know right or left. Do you know that God trusts you to make a decision? You know that God's right there going, hey, I'm right here. You go left, I'm with you on the left. He already gets it, by the way. You know that. He's sovereign. He knows where you're gonna land. And he goes, I trust you. Let's make a decision. Let's move forward. That's what he's doing. He loves you and he cares about you. He cares about your decision, but he just knows he's gonna walk with you either way. Do you hear in those moments where you're wrestling going, I cannot go forward, do you hear Jeremiah 29, 11 over your life? Do you hear the Lord saying to you, son or daughter, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. In the midst of you going, I don't know how this works out in the future. I don't have any hope. Do you hear Jesus saying, I have both for you? I'm right here. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I have you, son or daughter. Maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed with your circumstances in the world. Do you hear the verse at the end of chapter 16, the very chapter that we're in right now, where Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Kind of close with this example, but here's the reality so many times. We get wrapped up in life's circumstances. It's a storm of circumstance in our life, and we can't figure out how to get out of it. And so many times we sit there, we pray, Lord, stop the storm, stop the storm, stop the storm. And he shows up and we're so disappointed when he gives us an umbrella. Here you are. I didn't ask for an umbrella. I wanted you to stop the storm. People are in my office all the time and I just, I look at their circumstances and it's just clear. They didn't get into this mess in a day. They're not gonna get out of it today. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at them and going, okay, this is probably gonna be a bit of a road. And you don't seem like you got the strength for the journey. Hey, let me ask you a question. If God were to just change your heart, but your circumstances were to remain the same, if you could experience peace right where you are, would you be okay? Here's what they do. Well, yeah. Here's what we want to do. We want to throw a tantrum for the Lord and go, I do not want to be okay right now because I don't want him to do this again. I want God to know that I'm not all right when things aren't all right. He tells us, the end of that verse, what's he say? You can have peace. I'm into that. Peace sounds good. There's going to be tribulation. Okay, well, no, let's skip that. And then, hey, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. Which is it, Jesus? Do I have peace in you overcoming or do I have tribulation? You know what Jesus says? Yes. No, which is it? It's not which. The world's messed up. I didn't mess it up. Don't blame me. My plan was rad. But the world's messed up. You got to live in the messed up world. But don't worry, because I love you so much, I didn't leave you in the messed up world alone. I will walk with you. When you have tribulation, I'll give you peace. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Church, I wanna encourage you this week, spend some time, go find your promise from God. Take a piece of paper, journal some of the things he's brought you through. 
Give yourself a chance by remembering the works and the word. You will be lost without them. If some of what I've talked about today, you're sitting there going, I don't have that relationship. I don't know what it looks like. I just, I'll pray for you in a minute, but just that the Lord would bring somebody alongside you and you, we got plenty of them here who would love to chat with you and just say, great, let's start a relationship with a perfect friend. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. As you look for your promises this week, I hope that you'll come back next week to hear our senior pastor, Jamie Rasmussen, talk more about what it looks like as we continue this series for Jesus to walk with you and to talk specifically about the presence of the Spirit of God in that process. As we depart today, let me pray for us real quick. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to come together. God, I thank you for the ways that you've worked in my life, challenging as those times have been, you have always seen me through. God, I pray for each and every one of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrestling right now. Their challenges are all sorts of different things. They don't know where to go next. They're sitting on that place in the mountain where they go, I just don't know how this gets figured out. Lord, would you give them just a moment, that simple peace that allows them to be still and know that you are God. And for all of my friends out there right now, online or in our, in our campuses, in our venues, they're sitting there going, I want this relationship so bad, but it seems so abstract and so confusing. Would you give them just enough peace and just enough courage to boldly ask a question of where do I start? God, we just pray these things in your precious name as we put our lives in your hands this week. Amen.